This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. Happy Monday, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Much more to get to uh, over the course of this hour, including more time for your phone calls. Uh, Given the events uh, in Ukraine, it might surprise you, perhaps disappoint you to know that there are still Russian diplomats uh, conducting business in Ottawa. We have not expelled those diplomats, something, honestly, we probably shouldn't have done. Uh, It should surprise you, frankly, it should shock you to know that uh, Canadian diplomats uh, would be hobnobbing with Russian diplomats in Ottawa. Pretty shocking revelation over the weekend uh, in the Globe and Mail that the recent Russia Day celebration at the Russian embassy in Ottawa, a senior Canadian official was there to be a part of the celebration. Yasmin Heinbecker, deputy chief of protocol at Canada's Department of Global Affairs, attended the reception. The deputy chief of mission at the Russian embassy specifically thanked Ms. Heinbecker for honoring our reception. Now, initially, a spokesperson for the Minister of Foreign Affairs Uh, Sent in a statement to the Globe and Mail, this is not a business-as-usual situation, but we still maintain a diplomatic relation with Russia on matters of Canada interest, Canadian interest, and Global Affairs Canada sent a protocol officer to the reception. So initially, they defended this. Uh, That's not the line right now. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie O'Shalee took to Twitter over the weekend uh, to apologize for that decision and something she reiterated in speaking with reporters earlier today. The reality is... This should never have happened, and this will not happen again. Um, I'm the minister, and the buck stops here. And so I share the frustration and the anger of Canadians regarding this issue. Our intention since the beginning, and uh, our intention has been to suffocate the Putin regime and to isolate diplomatically, economically, and politically. So we'll continue to do that, because meanwhile, Ukrainians are fighting and dying. But in Ukraine. The, the reality is it didn't happen, though. So what went wrong? Was there no directive sent to global affairs to not attend events like this at the Russian embassy? Or? Listen, I had a conversation with my deputy uh, minister this morning. Uh, clearly, the goal is that it doesn't happen again. And um, like I said, I'm the, respo- I, I, I'm the minister. Well, the minister is taking responsibility, which... Basically means she says she's taking responsibility. She's not resigning as minister. It doesn't appear as though there's any kind of fallout from this, other than the government wants us to know we're sorry. There are indeed Ukrainians fighting and dying in Ukraine. What a slap in the face this is to them. How does such a thing even happen? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on this and maybe what a propaganda coup this uh, represents to, to Russia. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kolga, who's a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and founder of disinfowatch.org. Marcus, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I, I was flabbergasted to read about this yeah. on the weekend. I'm, I'm sure you were just as shocked. 
Yeah, uh, well, look, I, I think that the minister has been, overall, over the past three months, been quite strong on Ukraine. Um, the fact that, you know, this was reported was completely, you know, inconsistent with all of the messaging that has been coming out of the ministers in the prime minister's office, quite frankly. Um, and you're right. I mean, this, uh, this is, a, it hands a win to Vladimir Putin. What it signals, uh, first of all, to the Kremlin is that, uh, Canada, despite its, you know, tough talk is, is not necessarily walking the walk when it comes to our, when it comes to our diplomats. And it, and it sort of signals a, a bit of a, a business back to back to business back to normalcy uh, to to the uh, to the Kremlin, um, and this is quite dangerous because what Vladimir Putin sees in that is weakness. He sees it as an opportunity. He will continue to exploit it, and we saw the Russian embassy exploit this uh, over the weekend. You know, thanking the um, the uh, official for for being there in global affairs for honoring uh, Russia Day. And um, and it uh, it betrays a you know a certain weakness on the part of uh, global affairs. So yeah, you know this is this was a this was a win for 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 Putin. Um, thankfully, the minister came out with some pretty with a very strong position uh, today. Uh, you know, uh, stating that this would this will not happen again. But you know, ultimately, you know, I think that um, this puts into quest- question the 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 judgment of of the senior officials in in the department. And I think that somebody needs to be held to account for this extremely bad, uh, bad decision. Right. Yeah, I mean, somebody signed off on this, and I think Canadians deserve to know how this happened. I mean, because I, I don't get it. Does, does any of this make sense to you? Like how this even happened in the first place? Look, I think uh, as someone who has been uh, advocating on behalf of uh, Russia's pro-democracy and human rights movements for the past decade, I can tell you that there's... You know, for quite some time, there's been quite a bit of reluctance uh, in uh, global affairs to hold Russia to account. Um, You know, a lot of the uh, former diplomats who served under Jean Chrétien, who served in in Russia, have been openly and aggressively uh, lobbying, have been lobbying against sanctions for the past uh, five, six, seven years or so. Um, those former diplomats, they still have influence within, within global affairs. Um, so, you know, it was shocking given the fact, uh, uh, that, uh, or the, the facts around, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the barbaric nature of it, the, the war crimes that have emerged, the systematic rape of Ukrainians, the destruction of civilian infrastructure. One would think that uh, the that global affairs and the government would, you know, instead of having sending uh, officials to party at the embassy, that they would instead be expelling some of those Russian diplomats. Uh, you know, so this uh, the the news yesterday from the Global Mail was 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 quite surprising. You know, there's a question of whether you know, Russian diplomats should even be in Ottawa right now, that, that maybe we should have expelled them, you know, when, when the invasion occurred. It would be pretty awkward to do so now after we saw fit to attend their party. But you know, what about that side of it? Well, that's a good question. You know, the, the role of these Russian diplomats right now in Ottawa is to promote uh, Russian propaganda. Uh, a lot of it is anti-Ukraine, obviously anti-NATO, anti-West, anti-democracy, um, and to stir up as much trouble as possible. Um, they are tasked with dividing Canadians on this issue, for eroding our support um, for Ukraine right now at this moment. Um, that's what they're there to do. Uh, they're, they're not there to engage in constructive dialogue. 
Um, Vladimir Putin is clearly not interested in diplomacy. It seems that all of our allies, at least in Europe, uh, most of them have recognized this, and most of them have expelled uh, Vladimir Putin's representatives in those countries. Um, we haven't done so yet. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, it's, I think it's, it's curious the fact that uh, our own parliament has recognized what's happening in Ukraine at the hands of those Russian forces. They've recognized it as being genocide. Um, you know, it's quite frankly in, in completely inappropriate for the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, to continue serving here. And certainly, the, you know, the fact that there are other uh, diplomats who continue uh, serving in that embassy who are likely, uh, you know, agents of the Kremlin. Uh, like I mentioned, the, they're, they're engaged in promoting uh, disinformation and propaganda in this country. Uh, we need to be uh, reducing the number of, that, of those, those diplomats in this country to protect our own democracy and certainly ensure that our support for Ukraine remains at the level as it is, because that's, that's the threat that these diplomats represent. So any sort of excuse that, oh, you know, we need to engage on on Canadian interests uh, here or there, you know, that's, that's nonsense. Uh, these, uh, these diplomats aren't, aren't interested in doing any of that sort of real business. They're not in, interested in, in constructive dialogue. They've been instructed to be as disruptive in this country as possible. So we need to eject them. Uh, we should have ejected them three months ago. We should be doing so now. Or even at least to, to recognize that because, you know, there, there's a bigger issue here. You wrote about it in the Hill Times uh, this week. Uh, we, we took yeah. a look uh, last week. There was a study from the School of Public Policy, the University of Calgary, kind of tracking a lot of the same thing that, yeah. you know, the attempt by Russia, Russian-based sources to, to influence the debate, to shape the debate, to spread misinformation, disinformation in Canada. It's quite a concerted effort. We need to be aware of it, don't we? Yeah, so this has been going on. I mean, it's just, it hasn't just happened over the past three months when the invasion began, but it's been happening for quite some time. And, and the, the effort is multi-pronged. Uh, you know, with regards to the war in Ukraine, um, there's been a long-term effort to try and marginalize and silence um, Canadians of Ukrainian heritage, uh, to smear them with various different labels, including calling them all Nazis. You know, we know that Vladimir Putin at the start of this war um, tried to justify it as a war against a special operation to denazify Ukraine, even though Ukraine's president is, is Jewish himself. Um, so they've been uh, directly engaging in, in, in those sorts of narratives to, um, again, erode Canadian support for, for Ukraine and Ukrainians of, of Canadian descent. They've also tried to, um, to, to uh, erode the trust that we have within our society, to turn, our, turn us against each other, to divide us. Uh, and they've been doing this by identifying uh, narratives and issues uh, that are as polarizing as possible. COVID was a was a very fertile issue for uh, Russian uh, disinformation agents, uh, whereby they you know supported and amplified uh, fringe narratives in the you know anti-vaccination, anti-lockdown movements. Uh, and certainly during the protests in Ottawa, we saw Russian state media identify individuals who may not have even been directly linked to the Ottawa protests, but they linked them to it. Uh, these were individuals who were calling for the violent overthrow of the Canadian government. This was Russian state media giving these individuals a platform. Um, so this is the sort of uh, activity that the embassy is, uh, is involved in, and very actively so. And what we need to do is recognize it as a national security threat, a threat to our democracy and our society. And so, you know, allowing these diplomats to continue operating in Canada, you know, under the, 
you know, guise of being diplomats, whereas they're actual agents that are trying to undermine our democracy. We need to recognize that. We need to address it very soon. Absolutely. Much more at uh, disinfowatch.org. Uh, and, of course, more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Marcus, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. All the best. Uh, Marcus Kolga, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, again, founder of disinfowatch.org. So his thoughts on some of the challenges in uh, dealing with Russia, but also more specifically this uh, outrageous story about a uh, senior Canadian diplomat who attended attended this Russia Day party at the Russian embassy. It's just unbelievable. Like, how on earth does something like that happen? Well, resolution to a decades-old dispute between Canada and Denmark, a border dispute over something called Hans Island, which is a 1.3-square-kilometer island in the Arctic Sea Passage between Greenland and Ellesmere Island. Call it an island is is charitable. I mean, it's basically a large rock. But we've claimed it as our own. They've claimed it as their own. And we've gone back and forth on this since the early 1970s. But it appears as though a deal has been reached. Uh, The settlement is going to be publicly unveiled and celebrated uh, this week between uh, Canada and Denmark. Well, someone who's been following this for many years, in fact, came across a piece he wrote 20 years ago on this dispute. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rob Huber, Professor of Political Science at the uh, University of Calgary. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Always my pleasure, Rob. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there, there was, I think it was about 10 years ago, there were signs that maybe we were close to a deal, and obviously that, that didn't happen. So what, what do you make of the fact, first of all, that now this is actually happening, it seems? Well, I suspect that what's going to be happening is this is going to just be the first of um, a series of announcements. Um, if we're seeing a whole bunch of reshifting because of the second phase of the war in the Ukraine right now for overall northern security. And I suspect that we're going to be seeing some type of a, an announcement involving Greenland with NORAD modernization. And the only way from a political perspective that you could really go forward with that is that if you were able to settle this dispute we've had over this, um, this uh, as you say, relatively insignificant island for the last 20 or so years let's take a step back why is this this what seems like a, a useless piece of rock uh, has been uh, a source of such a, a dispute what what is hans island what do we need to know about this well, it illustrates how serious countries take about their borders. Um, you know, once again, I think Canadians often look at what's happening in Ukraine and, and just say, how can this be over borders? And yet, as you said, we've had this issue with Denmark over this island and neither country wanted to be the first one to give up for Canada. This was associated with Arctic sovereignty and protecting it. And for the Danes, it was, of course, showing that they had good governance systems for Greenland. And because of the political importance of those issues, what most people will look and point at as a relatively pointless dispute, why it has lingered for so long. So in terms of of where it is, you know, it's it's certainly nowhere near Denmark, obviously, but it it is it is right next to Greenland. It's uh, obviously right there in in this uh, disputed part uh, between Greenland and Ellesmere Island. So, like objectively, I mean, how does the rest of the world see this if, if they even care about this? 
I think I think you hit it. I mean, do you really think anyone's going to be paying any attention given all the stuff that's happening around us right now? Yeah. I think that this is a sense of completion for the two governments and the two governments can go back to their respective uh, constituencies and say, see, we're able to solve these so difficult problems. But I mean, I, one of the things, of course, that was a hallmark of this issue is that this meaningless island, as soon as the Danes had gotten a naval vessel that could take them there, they immediately went there and landed troops there. And so you sit there and you kind of scratch your head. Here's Denmark, you know, an ally of Canada. We, you know, played a role in the liberation in the Second World War. And, and you're going to land troops. And that's between two friendly countries that are allies. And but it undermines just how serious uh, border disputes can actually be when such a meaningless one remained unsolved for so long. And over the years, I mean, we, we took turns, what, planting flags and, and leaving behind uh, a little bit of um, little treat, a little bit of alcohol for yeah. uh, the other country. I mean, it was kind of friendly in that sense as far as disputes go. And, um, you know, maybe we'll sort of be able to wax nostalgic about that at some point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it was a bit of an oversight. Um, I don't think, and I'd have to be a little careful with this, but I think that the, the essence of the problem came in is that when they were determining the maritime boundary, because that was resolved back in 1973, we agreed how to divide Baffin Island and, and uh, Baffin Strait and how to uh, uh, separate Baffin Island from uh, Greenland. And that was all agreed in 73. And I think that what happened, and once again, a little cautious to say with certainty, but I think that the island just simply got overlooked. In other words, it didn't show up with any of the, the, the known technologies at the time. And then ultimately it turned out that the island was right on the line where the um, where the problem was. And so they adjusted the agreement to say that the line goes up to the southern tip of the island and then starts again at the northern tip so that, you know, the maritime boundary didn't get affected by the uh, by the discovery of the existence of this island. And then we never got around being able to because of the political elements that circled it we never were able to resolve it and then as i said the danes as soon as they got a ship that could take them up there did do so and ultimately because they did it two years in a row um our foreign minister bill graham or defense minister at the time felt it necessary for him to land on the island and so once again we see the way that these things escalate they agreed to meet at the un to talk it through everyone thought it would be solved at that point and here we are in 2022 and presumably it's just being settled now Right, and it sounds like all that's going to happen now is essentially we're going to draw a, a border across the island. We're going to divide it into a Canadian side and, and a Danish side, which, I mean, presumably we could have done that a long time ago. So it seems like a really simple solution to uh, what I guess became an overly complex problem. But was this always the most likely way that this was going to be resolved? I think most people thought that was the only way it was going to be resolved because, I mean, both the claims tie into the, the, the occupancy of their indigenous peoples. I mean, what we can seem to put together is that both the Baffin Inuit and the Greenland Inuit just used it as sort of a transit point to go back and forth. There's been no habitation on the island. And so I think probably that was going to be the logical solution. I mean, there have been some proposals of turning into a condominium. 
Uh, some people said, oh, maybe a gift of it should be given to both the Inuit people on both sides, though exactly what that would look like was never made clear. Drawing a line through it um, definitely is the easiest of the solutions. And as I said, I very strongly suspect that we're going to be seeing a series of announcements in terms of what Canada and Denmark are doing from a security perspective vis-a-vis -vis Greenland, uh, the American military base in Thule, and the modernization of NORAD. What are the lessons from this, though? And I mean, this was obviously a, a peaceful dispute. Denmark, in, in all other respects, is, is a friend and an ally. But in terms of what we need to learn from, you know, ensuring that we're on top of these situations, ensuring that we're uh, able to assert our sovereignty in the Arctic, because a similar dispute with, say, Russia, I would imagine, would, would go very differently. So what do you think we need to learn from that? Well, I mean, once again, it shows that you cannot underestimate what is happening in the north. Part of the problem that the problem cre uh, was created by the fact that I don't think federal governments really had a knowledge of what was entailed with this island and, and, and what was, was needed. I think it also undermines that even amongst allies, how sensitive land claims can be, in fact, when they are divisions. And so... You know, the big lesson I think that one has to take away is if we move into the forward, we are going to have an overlap issue vis-a-vis -vis not land, but the maritime regions in terms of the, the what's called the extended continental shelf. We have extreme overlaps with the Russians and the Danes on that one, and that one's going to be a much more difficult one to solve because potentially that's real resources, and of course it's dealing with Russia. Though, of course, as you pointed out in the last uh, episode you had, our foreign minister seems to be quite willing to have parties with the uh, Russians already. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, snarkiness aside, that one will be a very difficult one to um, to resolve. Yeah, absolutely. I'll leave it there. Rob, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Always my pleasure, Rob. All the best. Uh, Dr. Rob Hubert, uh, professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary, also with the Center for Military and Strategic Studies, and uh, someone with some, some really unique uh, expertise and insights on issues pertaining to the Arctic, and then something I think that's uh, maybe in short supply in Ottawa these days uh, when it comes to, to Arctic sovereignty. So this dispute with uh, Denmark has almost seemed kind of funny at times over the years. As mentioned, we have this whole thing going back and forth where Danish troops would arrive there, land on the island, plant a flag, and it became almost a tradition. They'd leave a bottle of schnapps. Uh, then at some point, the Canadian forces would make their way there. They would land on the island. They'd put up a Canadian flag uh, and, and often a sign saying, welcome to Canada, and then a bottle of uh, Canadian club whiskey. And on and on this went over the years. And... It did. It did seem like a weird dispute because, you know, Denmark's not our enemy. This is just big, a uh, big giant rock in the middle of nowhere. But there's some issues of strategic importance here. And it'll be interesting to see if, if those lessons are learned from this whole thing. So for the weekend, the CEO of Celsius Network, a cryptocurrency lending firm, uh, dismissing the idea that there were any problems at the company, responding to somebody uh, on Twitter. Quote, do you even know one person who has a problem withdrawing from Celsius? Why spread misinformation? Fast forward to today. Cryptocurrency lending firm Celsius Network will pause withdrawals and transfers between accounts due to extreme market conditions. Uh, it's been a really rough day for the global cryptocurrency market. In fact, a really rough stretch. The value of the overall cryptocurrency market today fell below $1 trillion for the first time since January of 2021. That market peaked at almost $3 trillion 
in just this past November. So the question, what's going on here? Now, obviously, there's there's some overlap with uh, global markets overall being down. But is there something specific going on in the cryptocurrency market? Well, joining us for some thoughts is uh, someone who's a, a close watcher uh, of all of this. Uh, David Gerard is uh, author of the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, Bitcoin, Blockchain, Ethereum, Ethereum, and Smart Contracts. And also more recently, Libra Shrugged, how Facebook tried to take over the money. Uh, much more, davidgerard.co.uk. David, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Well, let me ask you, first of all, I mean, this uh, whole situation with Celsius Network and, uh, you know, on the one hand, you got the CEO saying everything's fine. A couple of days later, they're, they're pausing withdrawals and transfers. What does that represent to you, first of all? Celsius had a lot of problems for quite a few months. Um, everyone's been wondering about this because, frankly, if anyone offers you interest rates of 15 to 20 percent, you should worry about what's going on there. And a lot of people have been saying that's just Ponzi-like interest rates. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I remember the 80s when interest rates were through the roof. And so people my age, I'm in the 50s, like we hear the interest rate like that and we think, oh, that sounds like a achievable rate that happens in the world. But not these days, it doesn't. If you see anything above 2 or 3%, you should wonder what's going on in the background. And people have actually been wondering about Celsius for a while. Their CFO got arrested last year. Um, the CEO had a lot of business dealings with another guy who got arrested. Um, so people have been worried, complaining that they've been having trouble getting out of Celsius, money out of Celsius for the last month. Wow. It, basically, it's a very, there's a lot of this stuff in crypto. It's barely regulated financial engineering that is basically constructed out of toothpicks and string, but they have a very nice web page. And... If you're into crypto and you know what an unregulated market looks like, um, maybe that's fine. But they get a lot of normal people's money in, and it's been really worrying. Right, and I, I think maybe we're seeing an example of that. It, it, you know, the, just the you know the wild, wild west nature of it, and how, how mm. people are jumping in, looking to get on the bandwagon, maybe not sure what they're getting into. It's quite scary. I mean, there was one case that came out just recently. Um, CDPQ, one of the big Quebec um, pension funds for public employees, actually invested in Celsius last year. And that just came out recently, and the media is finally going, what on earth were you thinking? You know, they put $150 million investment in this thing, and that's presumably gone up in smoke, which I'm sure will be very comforting to people. Um, It's The trouble is that people are so desperate for returns that they don't, look at what's inside the box mm-hmm. and then they discover it's full of squirrels and confetti and nothing else right which speaks to the kind of you know the basic question at the heart of all of this i mean is cryptocurrency a currency or, or is cryptocurrency a commodity why are people buying it what are people trying to get out of that whole experience basically people are desperate so they think my situation's bad i can get more money out of it like poor people are just absolutely just in trouble um they can't see a way out of their economic situation rich people have the problem that investments aren't giving returns these days you know two or three percent you're lucky they want more um pension funds and so on often have it in their rules they have to pay a certain amount and they have to somehow get returns when there's no returns in an economy so they invest in volatile garbage (laughs) 
I think crypto is a completely speculative asset. It's mostly traded on completely unregulated exchanges. Like, there's more regulation in many countries, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Canada has put in more regulation after Quadriga collapsed, taking $200 million with it, you know. But um, most of the trading happens on offshore casinos with no regulation at all. That's what the market actually is. And people have forgotten what unregulated markets are like. Like, there's no recourse. There's no one to call. You're on your own. Some people do well in trading conditions like that. You can totally get rich in crypto, but you can also lose your shirt. And a lot of people have been discovering that today. Bitcoin dropped from 30000 to 22000 over the course of just today. Stuff like that, you know. The mainstreaming, and it certainly seems like it's become more mainstream, and we see ads, you know, with celebrity endorsements, big companies, uh, you know, the, the arena mm. in Los Angeles is sponsored by a, a crypto company. Uh, does that mainstreaming give people maybe a, a false sense of security? It absolutely does. That was, I think the air has been coming out of the crypto. I mean, in 2021, we had a crypto bubble. It was an asset bubble where people get over-enthusiastic. They think, oh, get rich for free, and they didn't. That bubble has been deflating for the last year, I think. And you've seen people pump it up. And there's a lot of promotion going on, a lot of pushing this idea. And it sucks a lot of people in who absolutely aren't equipped to deal with a market where no one is keeping an eye on it. Um, We need a lot more investor protections and investor awareness. Ultimately, you can't stop people from buying magic beans if they think those are good magic beans, you know. We can try to inform people a bit better and try to tell them magic doesn't happen. There is no get-rich scheme that works. Use your common sense. There is nothing for free like this. It, it doesn't exist, you know. And I'm over here saying two and two makes four, and they're saying, no, no, it makes five, ten, or a million. You just have to have imagination. And um, then it turns out two and two makes four. Or if you're selfie, it makes three. You know, and certainly I think, you know, defenders or enthusiasts of crypto would say, look, I mean, you know, we've seen ups and downs before. People have written off crypto before sure. and, and it's bounced back. What, what do you make of those, those kinds of arguments at this point? I mean, it's fundamentally a speculative commodity that has no reason to be any price. It has no sort of like use value. Like gold is a useful metal and a dollar note is a piece of plastic, you know. But um, crypto is just literally a commodity with no use. All it can do is bubble. So I fully expect that it finally collapses this time, it'll come back in a few years, because when you're telling people that magic can happen and they've got a magic commodity and one weird trick that'll get them rich for free, people will flock to that. You don't even have to deliver. You just have to promise it, and people will throw money at you. It's very disconcerting, but I think it's also human nature. But what about the technology? I mean, you know, certainly the idea of these kinds of secure transactions, that the promise that this technology can deliver may be being used under the context. Uh, you know, even if, if this continues down this path, can we still uh, take something positive from, you know, where the technology is at when it comes to monetary policy, fiscal policy, you know, transactions, banking, all, all of that? Or are there applications still here, do you think? So... All of that is actually a smokescreen to try to sell you on the get-rich-quick scheme. The technology is not interesting. There's no new technology in blockchains that wasn't around in the 1990s. It has a few very limited uses, but not much. I mean, blockchains are really simple, technically. 
it's just a ledger you can only add new entries to and a way to decide who adds the next entry. Um, it doesn't have magical powers. Like, I explain how this works to non-technical audiences. They go, where's the magic? You know, the magic is in the promise that you'll get rich for free. But you can't just tell people, you'll get rich for free, magically. They'll say, how? You say, mm -hmm. technology. Right. They go, oh, technology. You know, because technology advances amazingly, but there's no interesting or ex amazing technology in cryptocurrency. It just isn't. And it's just a way of obscuring the fact it's all about the money. Watch the people and the flows of cash. It is all the engineering is financial engineering. It's all about people and the flows of cash. That's all it ever was. That's how it works. When it comes to regulation, as you alluded to, I mean, it is a wild west. Uh, there's, there needs to be a willingness, and, and maybe that's not there, but uh, there are challenges as well, I would imagine, in, in trying to regulate this. How, how do we go about it? How do countries need to go about this, do you think? It's really tricky. Um, as I said, most of the trading happens in offshore casinos with literally no regulation. Um, you have to somehow get them out of the market or make the markets much more regulated in the countries with good regulation. I think the key to this is basically the United States. Everyone in crypto deals in US dollars, they think in US dollars, and the US is where all the money is. So they want into the US. So there's a lot of people who asking the US to regulate this stuff more properly. And if we can regulate the gateways to and from between cryptos and actual dollars, then that will help a lot. That will help a lot in calming stuff down. Um, the great risk is that this will contaminate um, the real economy, contagion. Right. Like, if pension funds get into it, that'll be absolutely horrifying. I cannot stress what a bad thing that will be, and I hope whoever did this at CDPQ is found accountable, you know. It, it's really that bad. Um, you've got to keep this speculative bubble stuff out of people's retirements. I mean, you'd think that would be the obvious thing, but it doesn't seem to be, and it's disconcerting. Well, David, we'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned at davidgerard.co.uk. Really appreciate the insight here, David. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you. All the best. Uh, David Gerard has mentioned uh, author of the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. More recently, the book Libra Shrugged, how Facebook tried to take over the money. Uh, so a more pessimistic view of uh, what's happening in the crypto markets today. But I do think he raises some valid points about, you know, people looking to jump in on the bandwagon, not sure what they're getting into. Is that a problem of the system? Is that a case of buyer beware? And therefore, the responsibility lies with people who are jumping in, maybe not fully aware of what they're getting into. If you're simply looking at this as I'm going to make some some fast money, maybe you're and you're doomed to end up in trouble. But is there more to to the cryptocurrency story and what it represents? Like I say, do you see it as a currency, as something useful that serves a purpose when it comes to transactions, or is it simply about investing in a commodity and making money off of that commodity? If it's a commodity, what does it represent? What's what's underlying it? What's the value underlying? Uh, and, and yeah, look, I mean, obviously, there, there are a lot of people sort of throwing this in, in uh, Pierre Polyev's face today. Um, you know, that, that uh, he was suggesting that this is something that, that can shield investors from inflation. Maybe that was um, not, maybe not the most responsible thing to say. I don't know if politicians should be encouraging people to get on that bandwagon either. You know, the idea that uh, if this is a burgeoning industry, can Canada be a hub for that? Can we 
um, you know, emerges a more relevant player in an emerging uh, sector, that, that's a different kind of question than necessarily politicians uh, giving that kind of investment advice to people. Welcome back. Well, the Stanley Cup Finals get underway on Wednesday night. Colorado and Tampa should be quite a series. There's been a lot of interest in the NHL playoffs this year. It's been really exciting, obviously, to have uh, Alberta's two NHL teams, not just in the playoffs, but go head-to-head, has added to all of that excitement. So certainly that's good news for the rights holders, the companies who paid a lot of money to have the rights to put those games on television. But this is uh, a new era. And so there are a lot of people who are finding other ways to to try and watch these games, like through streaming websites. So the rights holders, recognizing obviously that they want people watching these games on their platforms, went to court. And a really interesting ruling came down recently from a federal court judge. Uh, The ability to require Internet providers in this country to block websites in real time it's it's quite a power uh that's been created here and look again you know we can talk about what needs to be done to deal with the illegal streaming uh, online how we uh, protect rights holders that sort of thing what are the implications though of uh, you know courts handing out this kind of power so this is called a dynamic site blocking order as the National Post describes it here, the court granted them the temporary ability to force all other major Internet service providers to block access in real time to web pages. That essentially the, the companies, the broadcasters, uh, in this case, Bell, uh, Rogers is the primary, right? So, but Rogers, Bell, and Quebec Corps were involved in this case. Uh, they basically tell the Internet service providers, block this website. And they have to do so. So that, that's a lot of power. And, and could this have some, some further ramifications even beyond the specifics of this case? It does seem rather unprecedented. Joining us to talk more about it, we're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon. Andy Kaplan-Mirth is a lawyer, a VP of Regulatory for Tech Savvy, which is Canada's largest independent competitive uh, internet service provider. Andy, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. We've seen these issues come up in the past, and there have been other court cases prior to this. But, but how unprecedented is, is the power bestowed in, in this new federal court ruling? Yeah, you know, the um, previous unprecedented ruling is only about two and a half years old, um, and that's the more static site blocking, I guess. It's a case called Gold TV, um, where the same Bell, Rogers, and Quebec were got federal court to issue, uh, you know, a similar kind of injunction, but it was for a specific targeted list of um, domain names and uh, websites only associated with this one particular kind of illegal streaming business. And at the time, that was, you know, the unprecedented site blocking order. We objected to that one. We opposed it, and we actually appealed that all the way to the Supreme Court you know, unsuccessfully. Um, now here we are two years later, less than two years, when they brought the motion for this new order, and already we have kind of the next unprecedented order. It's, um, you know, I'd, I'd say the pace of that's pretty concerning. So how does this work in practice then? Um, in practice, there is a agency, sort of a... Um, 
I don't know, an enforcement, intellectual property enforcement agency in the UK, I believe, um, that is doing the research to identify these IP addresses. Um, they are going to make those IP addresses available to us, to certain ISPs. Um, that's, you know, Bell, Rogers, and Quebecois, and a bunch of other ISPs that they named. Not every ISP in Canada, just the ones that they that they targeted. Um, that includes Tech Savvy, and it includes Shaw and TELUS. I don't know in your listening area. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will have to block those IP addresses during hockey games. There's sort of a window of time, but it's basically mm-hmm. during hockey games, a little before we have to keep them updated during the game and then a period of time after it. So in real time, so if, you know, if, if Rogers notices right at the start of the game, there's some website that's illegally streaming it, they contact Tech Savvy or Shaw or whoever and saying, here's the IP address, Shut, you know, block this website like right now. Yeah, I mean, the sort of technical details, there's a little, there's, it's sort of too much to go into, but essentially, yes, they'll be updating a list of IP addresses and some ISPs will probably automatically take those IP addresses and block them. If they develop systems for that, others would be able to do it more manually. But there isn't really a limit to the number of IP addresses, and, we, and I don't know actually what to expect. It could just be a few, and it could be, it could be hundreds or it could be thousands. I, I, I don't actually know um, what that's going to look like yet. What's interesting, so in, in terms of having to explain themselves to the Internet service providers or, or saying, look, here's the evidence that this website is, is engaged in something illegal, um, there, there's there's no expectation for that. It's basically, yeah. this is the IP address, block it. That's one of the really unprecedented things here. In that, That's correct. They don't need to justify it at all. Um, for the previous one, the Gold TV, every time they wanted to make a change and add new sites to block, they had to apply to the court, give us notice, give us the evidence. We did some. We did our own research. We decided if we were going to challenge it, and if nobody challenged it, you know, which nobody ever did challenge those changes in two years. Um, the court would order the chain would order those sites blocked, basically added to the order, and then we would go ahead and block them. We would at least have an opportunity to understand why they were targeting these sites. In this case, there's none of that diligence happening. We're trusting the list of IP addresses they give us um, and blocking them as you said, sort of um, on, a, on a real-time basis. You know, and, and I think people understand. Look, these companies pay uh, a lot of money for these rights. And, you know, essentially websites that are streaming these games are kind of stealing that from them. Um, but but what's, what's a reasonable way of, of trying to address these issues? Yeah, I mean, that's... It, it, there's a real challenge here for these businesses. Um, I, I am sympathetic to that need in a way. But that argument, that's an argument for them to make to a policymaker who can look at a range of issues and balance different people's concerns. Copyright law in Canada has always been about balancing different um, parties' interests. There's rights holders, and there's users, and there's a public interest. This should be no different. But in this case... There, it has not been put before a policymaker. It's not before the government doing a consultation and hearing different people's concerns. They went straight to the court to get an order in this particular case. And 
you know, my concern is that that will be used as a precedent for other blocking orders, both in copyright and for other reasons. I, I don't know why, um, you know, people who might be concerned about, say, defamation or provinces that may be concerned about illegal online gambling or, um, you know, any other situation where somebody wants to or has some need to block something from the Internet, they won't independently go to a court and get an order. And that doesn't have any, each of those individual cases doesn't really give anyone the opportunity to balance different people's interests, right, in light of what other orders are already out there, users' needs, um, and public interest considerations. What's the thing? I mean, this all seems to fall under the umbrella of, you know, that shouldn't be online or that shouldn't be on that website. There's nothing necessarily special or unique about the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, the same principle could apply to all sorts of different things. So, I mean, is there a potential for a slippery slope here, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we're not even just at the top of a slippery slope. We're, we're some ways down the slippery slope already. And, um, you know, the the cynic in me knows that they brought this order for the Stanley Cup playoffs because that would be basically pretty sympathetic in Canada. You know, hard to hard to get a lot of opposition. Um, whereas if they brought it to protect a particular show, it would have a much narrower, you know, um, audience. So now that they have this, why would they stop at just hockey? Surely they'll also want to protect, you know, their commercial interests for all of the money that they spend for the rights for baseball and football, not to mention the news, TV shows, you know, um, channels that are just rebroadcast on these illegal services. All of that sort of seems like it's up for grabs now. So does that suggest that there's there's a policy void here, that maybe we do need the, the government to, to step in and, and, and show some leadership on that? Yeah, I mean, one point of view, though, is that these companies have been trying to get the government to add site blocking in some form to the Copyright Act for a very long time, um, and the government has not done so. Um, in a way, I see that as a government decision not to add site blocking to the copyright balance. And they've had the opportunity to do it, um, and they have not done so. So... You know, from my perspective, that is actually a policy choice where the government has chosen not to uh, add site blocking. But, you know, now there's this danger that it's going to be used more broadly. I, I do think the government needs to step in and either endorse some kind of site blocking framework that we can all, you know, work with um, or else make it clear that there's, you know, there's no place for this kind of site blocking in the copyright um, regime. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Really interesting. Andy, appreciate the insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks. Thanks for speaking with me. All right. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Andy Kaplan-Murth. Uh, he's a lawyer. Uh, testified uh, before that Commons Committee back in 2018 that was studying this. He's a VP of Regulatory for Tech Savvy, uh, one of the ISPs that's affected by this. So they're kind of saying, look, you know, don't put it on us. But the courts uh, are taking the side for now of uh, the plaintiffs in this case, Rogers, Bell, and Quebecor, who hold the uh, NHL broadcasting television rights in Canada. And obviously, uh, this company that owns this radio station does own radio rights uh, in certain markets, but uh, not involved in this case. So as, as our guest wrote uh, you know, a few days ago, 
He says, I don't defend unlicensed content. My concern is with creating telecom policy through adversarial court process, repeatedly dragging these Internet service providers through court and making us juggle multiple orders and list of block sites. And it's an absurd, bad solution. So what is the solution to this? Because this is the reality of people want to stream something. They're going to find it, whether it's the Stanley Cup playoffs, the UFC pay-per-view, the latest movie, the hot TV shows. You know, I remember when Game of Thrones was at its peak and they'd always make, uh, you know, such a big stink every week. Well, these are the, the downloading and streaming numbers. And HBO almost wore, wore it like a bit of a badge of honor, like this shows how beloved our show is. But at the same time, uh, that show doesn't exist unless HBO puts the money into it. And so that's the challenge. You want Game of Thrones? You want other shows like that? Well, these streaming websites aren't paying for it. Uh, HBO's paying for that. And people subscribe to HBO and pay them money to do that. So how do we balance all of this? Because it is quite a sweeping court order. Uh, The Rogers Bell and Quebec War. Basically, tell the internet service providers you need to block this website. And they're obligated to do so. No questions asked. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.